And thanks, Jonas and Bella, for sharing. It's so good to hear. Um, there's something about bald men <laughs> that, like, I don't know, without even saying a word, there's like this unspoken permission, like, for you to make jokes about bald people if you're not bald. I don't know what that is, but it's there, isn't it, Tom? Just like, yeah, just free for all, right? Anyway, so, which is fine. Like, we're, we're game. We're game for it. I've never made fun of somebody with hair for having hair, though. What? Well, that's, you know, depends on what their hair looks like. That's a good point. Okay. <laughs> so I, the, the comment I get when I go into schools and work with little kids is this, like, kind of wide-eyed thing. like, why is your head so shiny? And I'm like, well, okay. And I don't, they think like that I oil it or something like that. So I know that when I preach up here and it feels like Moses coming down off the mountain, <laughs> that is not the intention of, of it. John Wilbur knows exactly what I'm talking about. It's like, uh, so yesterday we're at lunch. We're sitting outside. The weather's beautiful. And uh, my daughter Daisy's got the sun in her eyes. So I give her my hat. I always wear a hat outside. I give her my hat here. Wear my hat. Carrie looks at me. He's like, yeah, it'd be good for you to have some, some sun on your head, you know. Well, I forgot what the sun does because it feels like it's been winter forever. And I got a little bit of a sunburn yesterday that I noticed. I was like, wow, my head is red this morning. And I know that like, coming down off the mountain, you know, Moses' face shone. And yet it faded over time. And the same thing ha will happen with my head as well. The, the sunburn will fade. And um, I don't know if you've ever had one of those mountaintop experiences. Anybody, anybody ever had what you might call a mountaintop experience? Like you went to a camp or a retreat or something, and it was just amazing. Like you step out of normal life for a little while. Um, that's what the If Gathering is all about for you ladies, like stepping out of normal life. That's what Young Life Camp is about, stepping out of normal life and, and kind of giving a break from those things and, and, and giving an opportunity to... To, to meet with God and meet with other people and to relax and to rest. And we have mountaintop experiences and we return from the mountain in some way with, with some excitement and clarity and some, some renewed energy, maybe for the first time ever to follow God. And uh, if you've lived some life and you've had these mountaintop experiences, what happens after you come back home? Things kind of fade a little bit, right? You, you, get, you, you, you meet the people that... You, you know, start making fun of your hair or your head or something. Um, and you, you get back into life, and, and the, you know those mountaintop experiences don't last. Just like Moses in the, in the story that Caden read came off the, the mountain from God's presence with the glory fading off of his face, as the New Testament tells us. The glory eventually Fade. So, so I had that text read this morning because it actually connects with the story we're reading this morning from Matthew chapter 7, which is really just three verses at the very end, two verses at the end, and then the first verse of, of chapter 8. If you want to turn there, you can. Jesus is wrapping up his most famous teaching, the Sermon on the Mount. And in this passage, in this Three chapters. Moses is actually presented here as a, as an, or excuse me, Jesus is presented here as a new and better Moses, one who has given his teaching or his law to his people, and now we're told he descends from the mountaintop. So, so at the beginning of the sermon, if you look back a couple chapters at chapter five, verse one, we're told that Jesus goes up on the mountain to teach. 
Seeing the crowds, it says, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them. This is almost exactly the wording that we see in the book of Exodus in chapter 19 and 24 and, and 34. When Moses himself goes up on Mount Sinai to meet with God. And then Moses comes down from the mountain after meeting with God and receiving the law. He actually goes up and down the mountain several times, but he comes down from the mountain in in Exodus 34, which we read here, with his face aglow. Like It's hard to even imagine what that would have looked like, but the people were afraid of it enough to try to hide from him. And Jesus now, too, comes down from the mountain in these few verses, chapter 7 Verse 28, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. And in verse 1 of chapter 8, when he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. So Jesus is this true and better Moses who's gone up on the mountain. He comes down. And he's come, like Moses, to redeem his people from slavery and lead them into a new exodus. He, he gives the law, this new law to his people, descends from the mountain, but he descends from the mountain with a glory that's all his own. It's a glory that won't fade like Moses' face would fade because he is the king of glory and his glory will never fade. His mountaintop high is eternal in that sense. So here comes, here comes Jesus off the mountain. And, and when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, tablets in hand and face aglow, remember he did this twice. The first time he threw the tablets down and broke them because the people were worshiping idols. The second time he comes down with his face aglow. Something new at that moment enters the world when Moses comes down from the mountain with the law. And it's the God, the creator, Yahweh, the creator of heaven and earth, of all the universe, entering into a special relationship with his people, Israel. And now we find Jesus descending from the mountain with this law, the Sermon on the Mount, and greeting his people, and they greet him with the same kind of astonishment. His his face wasn't shining like Moses' was. That'll come a few chapters later, by the way, when he goes on to a different mountain. He's greeted with the same kind of astonishment by those who, is, who had heard his teaching. But before we go too much longer, I want to do, do us the work of reminding us, do the work of reminding us appropriately of what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. We've spent 10 months, did you know that? 10 months in the Sermon on the Mount. And I looked at Carrie the other day and I said, I'm thinking about going back to chapter 5, verse 1 and just starting over. Um, And the reason for that is because if we could get the Sermon on the Mount, like if we could really get it and live it and walk with middle schoolers and high schoolers and our neighbors and our families and each other and walk in the Sermon on the Mount, I think that would be enough. So maybe that's just what we'll do is just keep sifting through the Sermon on the Mount. It's good enough to do that, and I would encourage you to continue reading it. But I want to just take all of Jesus' teaching here and and summarize it. Now, um, more than any other scripture passage in all of the Bible, more has been written on the Sermon on the Mount than anything else by far. So there's plenty of opinions on it. There's plenty of outlines on it. I'm going to give you mine. So this is number one million and one. 
just to help kind of get our minds wrapped around it, Jesus begins with this idea of what I call distinctive righteousness in Matthew 5, 2 through 16. He begins with a list of virtues that seem alien. Um, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who mourn. These things that seem upside down and alien. They seem foreign in this world in which we live. And in these what are called beatitudes, Jesus is articulating what the lives of kingdom citizens will look like. Jesus calls kingdom citizens disciples. So he's giving us a picture of what the life of a disciple will look like. They will look alien in this world. They will look like strangers in a strange land who are, who are marked by distinction and separation. They'll look like seniors in high school going and hanging out with seventh graders. That's weird. It's strange. It doesn't line up with the values of this world. It's a distinctive righteousness. Jesus' disciples will be salt and light. And that won't result necessarily in popularity. It won't result in fame. It won't result in high poll numbers for his followers. In fact, Jesus says, it will guarantee you persecution. Chapter 5, verse 6 and verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted. For righteousness' sake. There's a distinctive righteousness that, that marks the people of God. There's secondly, Jesus goes into this exceeding righteousness in chapter 5, verses 17 to 48. So he's, he's, giving, us, he's, he's giving us this new picture of righteousness. And, and the people who are listening to him have, have heard one picture of righteousness from their religious teachers. And Jesus' listeners now receive from him a higher call, what he calls a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, an exceeding righteousness in chapter 5, verse 20. Jesus isn't, though, he, he isn't adding anything to the law here. He's not saying, okay, here's what Moses said, now do this. What he's doing is actually drilling down and getting to the heart of the law. This is what the law is really about. It's it's about the inner person and inner righteousness rather than an outward conformity. Righteous deeds should never be separated from a transformed, obedient heart of love. Even a heart of love, he says, towards those who you would consider to be your enemies. So he calls for an exceeding righteousness. Then in Matthew 6, 1 through 18, he talks about practicing righteousness Beware that you don't practice your righteousness before men, he says. So this inner righteousness that he talks about, this exceeding righteousness, isn't supposed to be practiced in order to gain applause or to gain recognition, but as an act of inner heart devotion to our heavenly Father. So it's in this part of the sermon that Jesus actually kind of turns the corner and really begins to talk about our relationship with his Father over and over again with our heavenly Father. And that relationship becomes central to life in the kingdom. Life in the kingdom of God, Jesus says, is a life formed in our identity as a child, a son or a daughter of a loving, trustworthy, heavenly Father. So being a kingdom citizen is actually being a member of God's family. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, is to be his brother or sister, God's son or daughter. The next portion of the sermon, chapter 6, 19 to 7, 12, Jesus talks about seeking righteousness. 
Because if we have a relationship with a father and that is central to our life in the kingdom, righteousness is fulfilled then best through loving him. And we love God as we trust him and as we obey him and as as we treasure him more than we would treasure earthly treasures. It's also fulfilled as we love others and treat them as we would want God to treat us. Chapter 7, verse 12. Choosing God's kingdom and righteousness over earthly treasures is nothing less than, than fulfilling the law of love. And true righteousness is a righteousness that gives doesn't take, it gives. It receives from God and gives and gives and gives in generosity. So Jesus says, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all this other stuff will be added to you. And then finally, he ends the sermon at the end of chapter seven with living righteously. And he gives us these four different warnings of the sermon Picturing life in the kingdom as life lived under the authority of King Jesus, under his law, obeying his words, listening and being obedient to his teachings and walking in his way of righteousness. So I don't know if that outline of the three chapters of the Sermon on the Mount is helpful to you. It's helpful to me in understanding really what we have been talking about here and what Jesus has given to us as a picture of life in the kingdom now, at the beginning of the sermon, in chapter 5, verse 1, Jesus was speaking to a group of disciples, right? He calls his disciples to himself. He sits down, then he begins to teach them. But it, it does say that the crowds were present. He saw the crowds, then he called his disciples to him, and he's teaching them. Now, at the end of the sermon, in chapter 7, verse 28, we don't hear anything about the disciples' response to the sermon. All we hear is the, the crowd's response of astonishment, Now, the disciples were the ones that he intended to teach, and yet we don't hear how they respond. And it's almost like, uh, it almost makes me wonder if the disciples were just speechless. Like Jesus had just laid out the, the most beautiful sermon ever preached, and if they were just speechless, almost like, really, that's what we're supposed to be about? Almost like if it was like this clear picture that Jesus had just called them to lay down their lives. But the crowd responds with astonishment. The disciples, we don't know how they respond. But let me just paint this picture for you. Jesus doesn't call crowds. Jesus calls disciples to follow him. He may call you out of a crowd, but he doesn't call you to remain a part of the crowd. He's called you to follow him. Matthew 8, 1 says that, it's interesting, great crowds follow him, but it doesn't mention that many disciples followed him. We'll see that all over. Jesus was popular. He was healing people. He was casting out demons. He was loving people. Crowds were following him. And it's easy sometimes to follow Jesus when the crowd follows him, when it's popular, when he's trending. But it's not easy to follow Jesus when the pressure is on and you're the only one left standing, when it actually costs you something. Being part of the crowd, even, even if that crowd is labeled Christian or evangelical or conservative or whatever your preferred title, being part of that crowd is not what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Following as part of a crowd and following as a disciple are two distinct and very different realities. 
And what Jesus has done in this sermon is to lay down the gauntlet of discipleship. And our response should be, like the disciples here, quiet, and we don't say a word, thoughtful, even somber, a realization that Jesus has just asked us to lay our lives down to follow him. He requires no less. Now, when Jesus comes down from the mountain, the crowds notice, it says in verse 29, that Jesus has taught as one who had authority and not as their scribes, which means that Jesus was teaching them in a way that was different than their normal teachers. That's who the scribes were. The scribes were the experts in the law. Another word for the law is the Torah or the the teaching. And the scribes were, were recognized teachers. They were recognized interpreters of the scriptures. They are the ones who had gone to school and done the studying and gotten the theological degrees. My, one of my um, professors in college, when he would translate passages like, like this, he, he would say something like, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not like their senior pastors or not like their college professors or not like their biblical scholars. These were the the experts in religion, the experts in the, in the law of God, they were in the tradition, the religious establishment of the day, and they had that authority. They were the people you would go to if you had questions about God or about his law or about the Bible, and they were the last and final word on interpretive matters of teaching. So they were, they were the ones who really protected the doctrine of Israel. They were guardians of orthodoxy, defenders, teachers of God's word. Now, in his uh, classic devotional book, The Pursuit of God, you may have read it, A.W. Tozer makes a telling distinction. This distinction has stuck with me for years. A telling distinction between prophets and scribes. And he, he says, he writes that a prophet is one who has seen with their own eyes and heard with their own ears. The scribe, on the other hand, has only heard reports. And so the the distinction he makes, the Tozer makes, is one between someone who has first-hand knowledge and one who has second-hand knowledge. Here's what he writes. He says, for the scribes tell us, or the scribe tells us what he has read, and the prophet tells us what he has seen. The distinction is not an imaginary one. Between the scribe who has read and the prophet who has seen, there is a difference as wide as the sea. Now, Moses was the great prophet. He was the great Torah, the lawgiver, who who came down from the mountain of God with a shining face. He had been in the presence of God. He had seen with his eyes. He had heard with his ears. He had seen the, the hindquarters of God's glory, and his face carried with it the remnants of that glory. Yet even then, this was a borrowed glory. It was a glory that was given to him and received by him. And in the end, Paul tells us this in 2 Corinthians, in the end, it was a temporary glory. It would eventually fade from his face. But Jesus is the new and the better Moses. Jesus is the new and the better prophet, the new and the better Torah or lawgiver. Jesus doesn't borrow glory from anybody. 
He has his own glory. And and when he, like Moses, comes down from this mountain, his glory is recognized and seen even, even in the most unlikely places by the most unlikely people, and it is seen in his authority. The crowd saw that he taught as one with authority and not as their scribes. So the crowds recognized something different in Jesus than in the scribes. And it wasn't simply that he was a better teacher, that he had a more relevant style of preaching or better illustrations than their regular pastors. It wasn't something more it was, it was something more than just the way he carried himself or his tone of voice or his, his charismatic, engaging demeanor. Jesus was surely a skilled teacher, but these crowds are recognizing something deeper, something more innate than, in Jesus than just his, his style. They are recognizing the glory of his prophetic and kingly authority. That's what they're seeing. The king who teaches with authority. It wasn't just that Jesus is speaking as one who doesn't simply know the law. He's speaking as one who's giving the law. What they're discerning isn't simply that Jesus seems to know what he's talking about, but he carries himself in such a way that they see in him the authority to call the shots, to make the rules, His teaching is an expression of who he is, his eternal might and power and authority. So it isn't just a simple observation about how he carries himself in the pulpit. His authority has to do with his raw, innate, natural power, a power that is somehow revealed and recognized in and through his teaching. This is pretty clearly seen in in how Jesus relates himself to the law in the in the Sermon on the Mount. He doesn't merely interpret the law, but he actually places himself right at the very center of the law. Imagine me getting up here and saying something like this to you. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. What would you do with me if I did that, if I said that? Start throwing stones, yeah. Find a different job. I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill them. Jesus is the point of the law. Jesus is the end of the law. Jesus is the goal of the law. Six times in Matthew chapter five, he will quote the law with the saying, you have heard it said. Here's what Moses said. Here's what your teachers have said. Here's what your scribes have said. But I say to you, And then at the end of the sermon, he actually places himself in the place of the divine judge who calls people to obey his own words and places his own words on par with the law of Moses. So the question is, naturally, who has the kind of authority to say the kind of things that Jesus said? This is the same challenge that the chief priests and the elders bring to him in chapter 21 of Matthew When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching, and they said, by what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? In Matthew 21, 23, who has authority to interpret the law, but not only just to interpret it, but to point it all to himself? And as C.S. Lewis famously instructed us, there are only three possible answers to this question. Either Jesus is a complete lunatic, 
or he's a false prophet and an imposter, a liar, or he is God himself. You see, every creature in heaven on earth can can only exercise the authority that's been given to them. An ambassador goes to a foreign country and they walk in the authority that's been given them by their government. A, A president only has the authority that is given by him by the law and by the consent of the people. And even Moses only had authority insofar as God had given it to him as the leader of Israel, as the redeemer and the teacher of Israel. But when it comes to Jesus, he has authority in himself. It's an authority that's not derived and it's not limited. We'll see this in just a few verses. Joe is going to be preaching on these verses in just a couple weeks. And I don't want to steal his thunder. But Jesus, in a, in a few verses, will have a conversation with a, with a Roman military officer And what's unusual and important about this centurion is that he immediately recognizes and understands the core reality about who Jesus is, and it's Jesus' authority. That's what he calls attention to. In chapter 9, Jesus will claim authority to forgive sins, and that raises the eyebrows of the scribes, and here's how he responds in Matthew 9, verses 6 and 7. He says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he says to this paralytic who can't walk, rise, pick up your bed, and go home, and he rose and went home. So he proves his authority to forgive sins by healing a man and giving him his legs again. And in this instance, the crowds again recognize what's going on, and they respond appropriately. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid And they glorified God who had given such authority to men. The very next chapter, chapter 10, Jesus generously shares his authority with his disciples. It says he called to them the 12, his 12 disciples, and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. And finally, in some of the most Famous words in the Bible, words spoken again from a mountain in Galilee. He tells his disciples and he passes it on to us. The resurrected Jesus says this, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So in summary, Jesus has authority in himself. He's not a mere scribe, neither is he merely a prophet. Jesus is the king who with supreme authority rules over his kingdom. He's the only one who has the power, the capacity, the right to call the shots. He's not just another Moses who receives the law and passes it on to the people. He is the lawgiver himself. And this, this sermon is, is more than just a nice collection of sayings or insightful, like precious moments, one-liners. It's, it's the word of the king himself. And at the very center of this sermon on the mount is the king, Jesus himself. The righteous king who's, who's brought a king a kingdom and is bringing a kingdom of righteousness into this world. So the question, even in these few verses here, is once again clear. Same question Bella was asking you. What are you going to do with Jesus? What are you going to do with his words? What are we going to do with what he's told us and how are we going to listen to him? Are we going to obey him? Are we going to follow the one who is given, who is given, has been given all authority in heaven and on earth? Will we take Jesus at his word? 
So just in these few verses, Jesus comes down from the sermon to put his teaching into practice, to walk among the people now in all of his glory. He will now proceed to show us who he is and what it means to follow him as disciples in real life. That's what the rest of Matthew is about. The question remains the same. What will you do with Jesus? Will you listen to him? Will you obey him? Will you follow the king? I'll just give you three things to walk away with today. And the first is this. We must respond to this Jesus who has all authority in heaven and on earth. We must respond to him. His authority means that he knows, he actually knows what he's talking about. Jesus knows what he's talking about. As the eternal son of God, he's not taking someone else's words and interpreting them for us. He's speaking from who he is and his words are the very words of God himself. And if Jesus has the very authority of God himself, then he has the right to tell us the way to live and to demand obedience to his words. So what does it look like for you and for me to submit to his authority? Where in your life are you resisting his authority? Where are you saying, okay, Jesus, I'll follow you, but not here, not with this thing. Where are you resisting? Where do you need to submit and to follow? We must respond to Jesus' authority because Jesus actually knows what's best for us. He created us. He's wise. He knows perfectly what will give us life and what will tend towards death. He knows what it means to be truly human, to flourish and to live in the world in a way that aligns not only with God's will, but with our nature. So to submit to Jesus means to recognize and affirm that he knows what he's talking about and he has our best in mind. Even though it will be uncomfortable at times, there is no better place to be than in submission to King Jesus. And third and finally, Jesus sends us into the world with all of his glory. Just as he comes down from the mountain with his glory and takes it into the world and changes the world, just as Yahweh sent Moses back to Israel with the law and the reflective remnants of God's glory on his face, in these verses, Jesus, the embodiment of Yahweh himself, descends the mountain with his own glory, and he gives that glory to his followers and sends us into the world in the same way. So will you take Jesus' glory and share it with others? We call them to the king who made them, who loves them, who knows what's best for them. Will you take this glory and share it? And as we come this morning, we're coming to the communion table. Many of you are new, and um, before COVID hit, we actually used to do celebrate communion every single week. Some of you are just going, oh yeah, that's right. We used to do that. We've been doing it once a month for a while, but beginning this week, we're going to begin celebrating communion every week. Why? Because we need it. We need to look at the grace of Jesus and touch it and smell it and taste it because our God is a good God and Jesus came to earth to walk with us, to become one of us, 
to show us what it means to live, to teach us, to bring his kingdom, but also to go and to die on our behalf, to take on the sin of the world, your sin and my sin, and pay for it so that we might have forgiveness of sins and right relationship with the Father. And because of that relationship, we can now follow Jesus. He's given us his spirit to send us into the world and we can follow him. So as we come this morning, it's not about coming and beating yourself up and making sure that you've confessed every sin before you take of the bread and the juice. It's coming and experiencing hungrily the grace given to you in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because this sermon is wonderful, but you can't live this on your own. If you try this in your own power, you will fail. It can only be done in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So would you come to the table today and would you experience and taste that grace afresh and anew. Let's pray. Our Father, we do again come before you this morning, needy, needy of your grace, knowing as we, as we look at this sermon, as we look at your call even to submission, to hear and obey, God, we can't do it on our own. We can't even see our blind spots and our sin on our own, so we need you to come and shine a light to expose, to show us those places where we resist submitting to you, We need the power, we need your strength, we need your grace to to confess those things, to ask for forgiveness and and to live in a newness of life that only you can give. So we are desperate for your grace today, Jesus. As we come, we want to live as as kingdom citizens. Most days we don't know how. We wanna live on our own, so please forgive us and give us grace. Jesus, would you be exalted today? Would you be magnified? Would your glory and your authority be seen? And like the crowds, may we, uh, may we be astounded and astonished, dumbstruck by it. But like the disciples, may we also quietly count the cost and count our desperate need and come to you this morning. I pray this in your name. Amen. Come to the table.